There's no playlist at KXP. The responsibility and the freedom to the host that you're listening to. So that next song is always chosen by the voice that you're listening to. I guess our first real, my first real experience of serious hiking was on our honeymoon trip across the country. We went to uh, Glacier National Park. And all of that context that you'll need to be able to five years from now, ten years from now, still have a better sense of where the conflict ended and, you know, the basis for going forward. That's Tom Mara, Judy Bentley, and Sarah Jensen. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, your host. Tom Murrah is the executive director of KEXP, and he's been in that position for over 31 years. When Tom came to what used to be KCMU, a branch of the University of Washington, it had a range of about 15 miles. But now it's a powerhouse not only in Seattle, but throughout the world. What is the formula for Tom's and KEXP's success? One name that comes to mind is Paul Allen, but also turning back the clock on what radio used to be. Author, hiker, and historian Judy Bentley will be with us to talk about walking guides in Washington State. She is president and member of the Southwest Seattle Historical Society. We're going to talk about the second edition of her book, Walking Guides in Washington State. She has written 19 books. Sarah Jensen will be joining us a little later in this hour to address all things 2021. She is the executive director of the World Almanac and the Book of Facts in 2022. The World Almanac has been a source of information since 1868. I've always been fascinated by the World Almanac. It strives to give us just a glimpse of the facts of what's going on right now and allows us to interpret those facts as we go on into the future. Voices of Experience is heard Wednesdays at 3 o'clock p.m. and is simulcast with KKNW 1150 at that time. And then it is repeated on Sundays on Kixie only at 11 a.m. Any comments you have about the show, what you heard today, you can call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. Leave your comments. I'll get them on the air if you want me to. Now, speaking of almanacs and information, I'm a fan of Gene Balk. He's the FYI guy in the Seattle Times. He just had another column about some of the demographic shifts in Washington and the country. Here are a couple of them. From 2010 to 2020, Washington State grew by 890,000 residents, a 13% growth at that time, eighth in the country. From 2020 to 2021, Washington grew by 0.3%. Among 50 states in the United States, the whole country, the population increased to only 392,000 people. That's people coming into our country. Now, this is quite interesting. This is the first time the nation grew by less than a million people in a single year since 1937. And that was in the midst of the Depression. So, to all of those worried about people coming in through the borders... I think uh, that's something that we don't have to worry about so much, at least for now. In states that have lost population, the leader is California and New York. The fastest growing state in the country, are you ready? Idaho, 2.8% growth last year. Back with my interview with Tom Mora in just a moment. (laughs) 
When a flock of geese knocked out two engines on U.S. Airways Flight 1549 right after takeoff from LaGuardia Airport, who would you want in the cockpit? Captain Sully or a pilot on their maiden flight? If Captain Sully was your choice, then experience is important to you. And that's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. A variety of topics are explored, including local and national public affairs, self-employment, travel, lifestyles, health and fitness, history, and adventure. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Voices of Experience is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. Tom Mora has joined us, and uh, Tom is the executive director of KEXP, and he's been in that position for over 31 years. Now, KEXP, as you will hear, started almost like in a garage and didn't have much reach or frequency whatsoever, but now is a powerhouse, not only in the Northwest, but throughout the world. So let's get with my interview with Tom Mora. That would be my first question. Did you always have a love for radio, or is this something that just developed as time went on? Well, I was a um, a student at the University of Washington, and... uh, back from 86 to 88 and got involved in, in the station is known as KCMU back then. And, uh, the station manager at the time, uh, he just took me under his wing and became a mentor of mine. And, uh, I had, uh, considered, you know, journalism jobs, newspaper, television, etc. Uh, but this just, uh, felt right. This was a, a public radio station with a, um, with a music mission, uh, music discovery mission. Uh, and it just felt right. And, uh, and that was all it really took for me to just stay on this path of, uh, of public radio, particularly uh, music, uh, public radio. NPR is obviously a great example of public radio and being very successful, but it's amazing to think how you've been able to build this station, uh, over the years to where it's at now. It's a powerhouse. And, you kind of took a risk out there bringing on new artists and untried artists. And I just would have thought that would have been a real challenge to approach it and going, people saying to you, are you out of your mind? How is this going to work? <laughs> Maybe we were out of our minds. Um, but uh, yeah, the what our audience came to expect of us uh, was to be their musical Sherpa, as it were, you know, um, a radio station that would uh, take the time uh, to kind of scour the earth for music that should be heard and to then bring it, you know, to that music lover's life. I, I give a talk from time to time and I, I do this little silly thing where I, I bet everybody in the room a hundred dollars that they hadn't listened to KXP before. Uh, and if they spend a week with us, two things will happen. One is um, they'll hear something they've never heard before. And number two, uh, frankly, they'll hear something they don't like, um, which is the nature of our music discovery-based mission. So everything from indie rock to world music, jazz, blues, to hip-hop, electronica, uh, all these contemporary genres, we're, uh, we're in the business of trying to uh, 
get it uh, further into people's lives. And one way we do it is unusual for today. It's the way FM radio used to be back in the uh, 60s and 70s, and that was there's no playlist at KXP. We give the uh, responsibility and the freedom to the host that you're listening to. So that that next song is always chosen by the voice that you're listening to. Um, and that's way we've been doing it since the, uh, the mid eighties. Uh, so yeah, it is a unusual way of, of doing radio the way it used to be. And this is our niche, uh, for folks who, uh, are wanting to discover music. We're a great station for that. Yeah. I look at, uh, you're going against the tide then with all the stations being gobbled up by the clear channels, the iHearts and, Every song is measured, and because uh, I was a media buyer for a long time, and you'd go in, and that's how they did it. And it was, um, I think, it really hurt radio actually uh, in the long run. It took away the DJs, the spontaneity, the local part of it. Clearly, you ha- were onto something. And one thing I did read in the Seattle Times last week is that Paul Allen gave you a timely grant at some yes. point, and like to the tune of two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. Did he have a passion for radio or what you were doing, or was he just had extra money in his pocket and said, I'm going to help these guys? Well, Paul was a huge fan of, of music and a great supporter of, um, of Northwest music in particular. Back in 99, 2000, back then, this was the time when he was building Experience Music Project on the Seattle Center campus. And it was also the same time he was having a conversation with the University of Washington about the, uh, uh, you know, the nature of his commitment. Long story short, we really caught lightning in a, in a jar. Uh, he made a, a commitment to match our operating budget back then, which was $250,000 a year. He matched that um, and would match that for, for 10 years. Uh, however, I had put together a plan that... Um, suggested to uh, him, to his people, really, that uh, I thought we could become more vibrant of an organization if some of those dollars could be front-loaded and we would uh, really take a venture approach to uh, to this by hiring some you know, amazing programming folks, production folks, fundraising folks, um, sales folks. Um, and uh, I had made a commitment to take it from 250 up to 2 million within three years. And sometimes these things work. Paul uh, you know, really was a, a champion of music. And, uh, and I'll never forget what he, uh, he did for us and for our, for our city. Well, you're going to be retiring, what, June of 2022. I have a position at Voices of Experience for Director of Sales. Are you interested? I'm kidding. <laughs> I mean, the money you've raised, I'm going, wow. There, there's a, I mean, I know how hard it is to do it. And you have the magic touch. And that's a pretty amazing story. And then you took that and then took the studio to Seattle Center and brought live audiences back, which, again, was a pretty bold move. We moved into this new facility at Dexter and Denny. Uh, we had something we didn't have before, believe it or not. We didn't have a recording uh, studio or a session room. Uh, that was the first time back in 2000. And so, of course, we started booking bands um, and started broadcasting them live and recording them. And then a few years later, we started uh, capturing the performances on video as well. But let me just go on a tangent here just for a second. That audience is now much larger than our radio audience. Uh, our video audience reaches about 
million people a week, our uh, broadcast reaches about 160,000 people a week. Uh, so it was that investment in live performance, capturing a video through our uh, channel on YouTube is, uh, is, is, is actually the more impactful way we get this music into people's lives. Matter of fact, 75% of the persons that view our, our videos every week, actually, they live outside the United States. Only 25% of those folks uh, live in the United States. We're, we've been able to invest in uh, not only bringing this music to folks around the globe, something we started doing about, um, oh, I want to say 12 years ago or so, started identifying some music communities that around the world that were amazingly rich. For example, Reykjavik, Iceland, 350,000 people in that country. There's something in the water around there because the music creativity coming out of uh, Iceland is just, uh, is just exceptional. Uh, so we started uh, spending a week in Reykjavik capturing these live performances, and we started branching out further in the past few years. We've been to Poland and France and Mexico City, uh, Reykjavik, of course. Um, and this uh, coming year, we plan to go to Argentina, to Buenos Aires. Is there anybody trying to duplicate what you've done? Uh, I don't think so. Not not to this extent. That's the short answer. So the future of KEXP is just unlimited. I mean, the world is now your stage. Yeah, it's you know it's really interesting. When we, even when we started streaming back in the late nineties, uh, we you know had this question pop in our head because uh, we started getting requests from Indianapolis and Berlin. Up until then, our world was really simple. It was like a 12-mile radius from, from our uh, transmitter on top of Capitol Hill here in Seattle. question was, oh, gee, do we now have to become sort of geographically generic uh, in order for that person in Indianapolis to, uh, to connect strongly with us? And the, we quickly answered it. The answer was, no, if anything, we've become even more Seattle centric. Um, you'll notice that we don't we don't avoid things like references to you know weather or or events in town that you know tonight you know Seattle represented along the way, and we wouldn't have it any other way. I mean, in one of those rich cities musically around the world is Seattle. There's a reason why KXP's in Seattle is because the uh, the, the music creativity is just outstanding. I don't think uh, we'd be talking today. Uh, I think it's a combination of a rich music city coupled with a generous city as well. Those two things came together to really enable uh, KXP to grow. We're doing four to 500 of these sessions every year. Uh, what if we turned ourselves inside out and brought the public outside in and, uh, and connected many more music lovers to, uh, to artists? So in the new home, uh, we have a viewable session room that have a viewing gallery holds about 90 people that can uh, watch uh, these sessions when we open back up after covid is done we'll uh, enable the, the public to come in and watch them uh, for free as a matter of fact the commitment we made to the city of seattle in exchange for a favorable lease at seattle center was that we'd make these uh, free for the 30-year duration of our of our lease um so it's First come, first serve. When we open up again, uh, and uh, chance for people to to uh, witness artists, we think really deserve to be heard. That's KEXP Executive Director Tom Murrah. Again, congratulations on a great career. I still think you're retiring too soon, but you really didn't ask my opinion. 
But uh, again, you've done some wonderful things and you've shown what imagination and execution can bring. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. Judy Bentley has joined us, and she is an author, hiker, and historian. She has written 19 books, including Hiking and Walking Guides to Washington State. How did you get interested in hiking yourself? What brought that on? Was it somebody who influenced you early in life, your mother, your father, or somebody? <laughs> well, probably my husband. Um, I grew up in Indiana. Uh, we didn't have a lot of uh, hiking and certainly didn't have mountains and ocean. Um, but I did enjoy going to state parks there. Um, then I lived in New York City for about 13 years, and uh, my husband and I would hike the Appalachian Trail. I guess our first, uh, our first real, my first real experience of, of serious hiking was on our honeymoon trip across the country. We went to uh, Glacier National Park and did a five-day backpack, which was the first time I'd ever had a backpack on my back, and we had new boots and new sleeping bags, no tent, <laughs> and, but it was a, a great hike for five days, and that got me really into hiking. So then it kind of hooked you then. Here, it hooked me then, right? Then when we moved out here, that was one reason for moving uh, out here was to be closer to outdoors and, and hiking. So, Do you remember your first trail that you hiked? There were several um, that people recommended. They said you have to go to Cascade Pass, you have to go to Evie's Landing. Um, but the one that got me into history hiking was the Coal Creek Trail, which was close to our house in Bellevue. So I could walk out the door, uh, follow uh, a deer trail, really, and then it became a social trail that people had just made a path. And then it kind of got into wetlands, but I could connect to... Coal Creek and find a trail along the creek there. And that was my first kind of history hike in the sense of uh, discovering the history underneath the, the trail uh, along Coal Creek, which, as you can guess from its name, it's a, a very strong uh, coal mining history. Oh, yeah. As a matter of fact, as a kid, I grew up in Newport Hills, and we uh -huh. used to hike the Coal Creek tr um, Creek all the time. And oh, sure. we'd ride our sure. bikes up to the uh, mines, and it was, like, really spooky, And but it was fun. It's just a great memory. <laughs> yes. And, uh, I mean, you find things along the way, too. I mean, you find the coal, you find a whole big black hole in the ground, and you find unnatural um, mounds uh, that are tailings from the mine, and you find the site of a locomotive turntable. I mean, it's really incredible to me to be living in the suburbs and... Um, and walk out the door and find, you know, history from 100 years ago that was not so romantic, not so comfortable by any means. 
You've written a couple of books on hiking trails in Washington State. I think one was 2010, and you have one out now. Why don't we first start with the first edition and then go to the second edition? The first edition started with Coal Creek uh, for an idea. I also read a lot of Harvey Manning, um, and he described his, in one of his guidebooks, he described the Natchez Pass Trail through the Cascades, a, a wagon trail in the 1850s, and that was fascinating. Um, so I started looking for hikes that I thought had a little bit more history. I was teaching at the time. I taught at South Seattle College um, for many years, and so I was only hiking in the summers, and it took me a while. But uh, gradually, I began to put together a collection of historic hikes, which University of Washington Press uh, published then in 2010. They were uh, willing to take a, a, a gamble kind of on a combination, more popular history and uh, guidebook, something they had not done before. But What's the title of the, the book edition. then? Yeah, what was, what was the, the first, title of that one? The first edition is, is just called Hiking Washington's History. And how and many uh, trails are in, uh, various hikes are in that first edition? In that first edition, about uh, 40. I'm okay. Checking. Yeah, a little bit more than 40. Let me see. 42. 42 in that. Okay, so right. then you decided to just recently put a second edition out. Why did you feel necessary to do that? Are there new hikes in here, or you just updated what you had? I. It is curious. I, I thought that there would never be a second edition in the sense that historic trails, by their definition, don't change that much, but um, they do change, and the access to them changes and I discovered some new ones. I also wanted to make it um, ha include more trail description so that uh, it could be more of a guidebook. And so that's why I uh, invited uh, Craig Romano to, to co-author the book, and he has provided uh, more detailed uh, trail descriptions for the second edition of the book. There are 12 new hikes in this book um and it, it was a uh, surprising to uh, find that there are there, uh, there are many trails that i that i had still to be discovered there are trails that are hard to find too so i was always looking of course for trails that uh, are well maintained that people can follow okay so if you um access issues is being able to get to the trailhead as easy as possible but then accessibility Let's put it that way. Let's say older people or people with um, some challenges physically that they can maneuver through the trail better. Well, by I meant more access. Uh, there's a variety of trails in the second edition. Some are short and easy, and most people can do. Um, some of them are multi-day backpacks, so they range a great deal. But at least they are ones that you can get to the trailhead for. Um, okay. Because of the removal of the dams on the Awa, for example, has made access to the Dodger Point Trail very difficult. So I did not include that in the second edition. Okay. What are your favorite hikes? Oh. <laughs> I mean, there's probably a lot. We could be here an hour and a half, I'm sure, but maybe two right. or three. One is Callis Pass. Um one, is, which is uh, south of Mount Rainier, 
in the Gifford Pinchot National Forest and, I, and north of White Pass. Another is Chief Joseph Summer Trail, which is in southeastern Washington. Uh, the Nez Pierce Trail, very remote area. Is that in the Palouse area? And, yes. Uh, it's in the very southeastern corner. It's in the uh, Wenaha Tucannon Wilderness and in the Blue Mountains that also extend into eastern Oregon there. So it's right on the border with Idaho um, and Oregon in that corner. What do you think would be the best type of hikes that people can take that, again, takes that into consideration? I know we got western Washington and eastern Washington. We have the mountains and they're entirely different climates. But would you have Mm -hmm. a couple that you'd recommend that people should consider if they need to get out? One that is new in the second edition is the Snoqualmie Valley Trail. It goes for 31 miles, and you can choose (laughs) small parts of that. And It's a railroad-grade trail. It's on... um, the bed of the Seattle Lakeshore and Eastern Railway goes along the Snoqualmie River. This was the ancient uh, waterway for the Snoqualmie people. Um, a lot of steamboat travel up the river. So the trail roughly follows the river, although the river is winding and the trail is straight. And you can pick this up. It goes from Deval all the way to uh, Rattlesnake Lake. Um, there are parks uh, along the way. Meadowbrook Farm is accessible. Of course, it goes um, near Snoqualmie Falls. So you can choose. Uh, you can get on it at Tolt McDonald Park in Carnation and many other places. My thanks to Judy Bentley. If you'd like to get a copy of this book or any other book that Judy has authored, I suggest you just Google Judy Bentley, and Bentley is spelled B-E-N-T-L-E-Y, Seattle author, and it will come up. my guest, and also a very good friend. Michael is a Washington native who grew up in Tacoma. That Tacoma connection eventually led him back to his roots. In 2011, he put together a group of investors to purchase what is now the AAA West Tacoma Rainiers. Michael serves as chairman and CEO of the Tacoma Rainiers. Michael spent more than 20 years in the wireless industry, In 1992, he co-founded Pacific Northwest Cellular, where he served as managing director. After a series of acquisitions and mergers, he became CEO of Western Wireless until Western Wireless sold to Altel in 2005. Michael serves on a variety of private company boards. He co-founded Trilogy, where he and his partners have become angel investors. He has served as chairman of the Washington State University Foundation, where he graduated from with a degree in business. I started out my conversation with Michael, and I asked him, what does he look for when he is hiring someone? When you hire someone or associate your company with someone, what what type of things and questions do you ask yourself? I look for someone who is more than just a, you know, just a set of experiences that are directly attributable to the job that I'm looking for. I look for a well-rounded person. I look for somebody who has uh, done a lot of things outside of their, uh, uh, their professional side that, that they're not a, a, a one dimensional person. And um, you know, I, but in general, I'm looking for somebody who brings more than just the bare minimum to the job, but people who bring uh, 
uh, a lot of diversity of experiences. Sort of like joining clubs and things like that, or just being involved in extracurricular activities. Yep. Let's say, you know, you and, and a number of people, obviously the last year and a half has been extremely challenging for everybody, but you in particular, I mean, you kind of are the, really the head honcho of the Pacific Coast League, AAA, Tacoma Rainiers, and certainly you have Trilogy and other investments in, in that area. How have you made adjustments during this time? Is the minor leagues and the major leagues have uh, have kind of merged and meshed together? Uh, I, I think uh, overall to the uh, to the benefit of both, uh, in a way that uh, they they weren't before, and um, so that has been uh, that's been helpful during this this time where we went from uh, you know making uh, uh, you know in. 19 or 2019 we had uh, over 12 million dollars worth of revenue and in 2020 we had approximately zero um, and uh, so that was a uh, that was a fairly big change um, happily we'd done some some great things with the community in the past and we were supported by the community during that during that tough time uh, we got uh, we got some PPP funding when the government, you know, basically did what a government should do during a, uh, a uh, pandemic, which is, uh, you know, support businesses that were strong and through no, no fault of their own ran into some difficulties, but it's been, uh, it's been a lot of, a lot of interesting times. I would say from a, an overall standpoint, I have been served well professionally by having a diversity of interests. My thanks to Michael Thompson, a true voice of experience. His advice to want to be entrepreneurs? Operate from the balls of your feet. Don't sit back on your heels. Be ready to jump at opportunities, even if they aren't what you anticipated at the beginning when you started your company. There are going to be some things that come along the way that you need to be willing to bet your business on. And they're not obvious to you when you started your business in a lot of cases. I could not agree with that assessment more, having been in business myself for over 30 years. Full disclosure, my wife and I are investors in the AAA West Tacoma Rainiers. talking now about the World Almanac 2022 edition. I spoke with the executive editor, Sarah Jansen, about this year's version. You know, I hadn't really thought about the World Almanac in a while, and I used to read it quite a bit, but I've fallen out of the habit of doing that, and that's why it was really interesting to catch up, again, with the um, executive editor. So let's just get right to it and pick up with my interview with Sarah Jansen. How did you get interested in your vocation right now, um, going into world history, the almanac, book of facts. How did this uh, come to you? You know, it actually was sort of uh, serendipitous. I was in college and I took a internship with a publishing company that included the world almanac and uh, 
graduated a couple of years later and have been working full-time for the World Almanac ever since. And did you just have an interest in this growing up, like little things would happen that you would just say, that is fascinating, and um, I would like to catalog these things? Oh, (laughs) I don't know about cataloging, but definitely I was always a curious kid, always uh, really interested in, you know, figuring out and breaking down the world around me. I also actually, when I was a kid growing up in the 90s, I got a copy of the World Almanac with a, it was bundled with a Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego computer game. Um, So that's where I first got hooked on the idea that there was a book that could cover so many different topics from science and world history to politics and pop culture to sports statistics um, because the the computer game would make you answer, you know, trivia questions or make connections between details uh, using the World Almanac as a, as a resource. So I've been a fan since way back when. So you've been interested in this for a very long time. Do you win all these trivia games? <laughs> Unfortunately, no, but I do know that um, lots of people use the World Almanac when they're preparing to go on Jeopardy and shows like that. It's it's kind of like a one-stop sh- uh, study guide for people who are trying to, you know, really do a good review of lots of different subjects for trivia shows and, and quiz shows and all of that kind of thing. There is so much here, and we just have such a limited time. You've got the economy, you've got U.S. cities, U.S. government, facts and history, consumer information, science and technology. Because we do have limited time, are there things that you would like to highlight about what you have found while you've been doing this over the years? Well, certainly the mission statement of the World Almanac is always cover all of the events of the past year and then provide a really great resource for questions on any subject going forward in the upcoming year. So because we're talking about the World Almanac and Book Effects for 2022, that means that we have all of the events of 2021, and it was a very busy year. We had to cover things like the coronavirus pandemic, like the exit from Afghanistan, and, you know, everything else that we're always keeping track of, whether that's census results or the latest MLB, NFL, and NBA seasons. Um, We're always trying to pay attention to everything that's going on all year long to provide the best reference possible um, for the year coming up. Well, I'd just like you to highlight what you think is most interesting. You know, I love working on the offbeat news stories every year. I love working on the year in pictures every year. You know, Almanac editors spend a lot of time with data, with black and white statistics and charts. So it's always a lot of fun to get to work on the full color section and get to, you know, get a good glimpse at everything that happened in 2021 from the visual side of things. And that's everything from news events um, to the year in sports to taking a look at some of the notable, you know, uh, obituaries that we had to highlight in the past year. Is there anything that jumps out at you about 2021 that you'd like to share? Certainly the pandemic uh, was 
the headline for the year and unfortunately remains in that position. But other things that maybe that happened during 2021 or any time that, again, you grab and you think are just really fascinating, like you went had aha moments or something like that. I think you'll find aha moments really on every page of the World Almanac. That's one of the great things about a book like this. Um, if you're a curious person, you can pick it up and flip to a random page and find something that you'll be fascinated by or interested in, whether that's some of our editor's picks lists, which um, this year includes some sports scandals and a time capsule to, you know, just looking at statistics on, you know, the highest um, highest streamed songs every year or to look at the, you know, most visited websites or to take a look at so many um, billionaires traveling into space in 2021. We've got coverage of all of these new things and all of the features that people have come to expect in the World Almanac, no matter what page you flip to. Since everything moves so quickly, what would you say, or what does the Almanac say, I guess, what was the biggest sports scandal? Well, we didn't rank them. We decided to come up with a top 10 list of um, the most memorable sports scandals of the past 20 years. And that's because uh, a while back, they did a list that was similar, the World Almanac did. Um, but there's been a lot of scandals since then. <laughs> so we decided to just look at the last two decades. And that has everything from doping in cycling and horse racing to some trash can banging on the World Series side of things. Oh, yeah, and that wasn't just people taking out their garbage. That was something that was pretty amazing that occurred. And you go, what? Did that really happen? And how did they get away with that for so long? We're talking the Houston Astros, right? Oh, yes, absolutely. That's the only trash can banging scandal I'm aware of. But, you know, 2022 can have another one in the works. Who knows? You know what's amazing about that? You know, you talk about technology and all the advancement we've made, and you think that's the best they could do, crashing a trash can together to throw off the pitcher or be able to predict the uh, the balls and strikes that are coming in or whether to hit the ball. I mean, isn't it amazing? It's a very analog solution considering how into, you know, analytics and high-end metrics baseball has gotten in the last, you know, 10 years or so, especially. Yeah, that's what I meant. You just said it better than me. That's exactly what I meant. Yes. Now, going forward, do you think when you are doing this work that you're connecting dots that you can maybe see the future better, if you know what I mean? You go, well, we've done this before sort of thing. Does that ever enter into how what you think about when you're going to dinner and sharing information with friends of, you know, we look at 20 years in Afghanistan. Well, it's like, hey, we're doing something over here. We don't want to do that again. You see what I'm driving at? I do. And, you know, I think that no matter what topic you're looking at, whether it's something of life and death importance, like the conflict in Afghanistan or something smaller, it never hurts to have a really great foundation of knowledge in something, to to be able to look at the the facts on the ground, the basic numbers and data, and also context for whatever subject you happen to be discussing. I think that one of the things that the World Almanac does really well is provide those authoritative foundational facts for tons of different topics. 
and then you can go from there. You can do your own research in a number of other uh, sources. We also list our sources for all of our data on every page. Um, so it can actually be an entree to a bunch of other places to do research. And we spend a lot of time and a lot of resources of our own on fact-checking everything. So we can make sure that everything that has been published in the World Almanac has been verified and double-checked by our team of researchers and fact-checkers um, to provide a really great foundation for any subject you might want to know about or might come up in discussion, we've got, you know, the essential facts for you right in one place. When you look at Afghanistan, for example, I go back uh, a distance, even back to the 1960s and into the 70s when I was observing the world. And I guess, speaking just for myself, the exit out of Afghanistan, for example, has been viewed as being really sloppy. And that's just what everybody thinks. It just wasn't handled well. But when you're in occupying a country like that for so many years, I don't think it can end any other way unless there's a decisive victory. And I kind of feel when I go back to the Vietnam War, going through that, and then the exit out of there was a absolute horrible situation, which you look at. It's almost predictable that when you look at conflicts like this that you get in, you ask that question, is this really worth it? And I wonder if things like that, like I haven't seen the book per se, but the 20 years in Afghanistan, if that shines any light on that. Well, I think the thing that is done really well with our Afghanistan feature is put this 20 years in context. You know, we knew going into 2021 that there would be an exit this year. The deal had been signed in 2020. The plans were in the process of being made. What we didn't know is what it would look like, especially... Um, you know, given the, the comparison you made to the exit from Vietnam, it, it, there's been, you know, 50 years of uh, technological advancement since then, particularly in the immediacy of media. We, and we saw these immediate images of the evacuation process in HD, you know, on the phone, in, your, in the palm of your hand, in a way, you know, all of these things that made things seem more immediate than they maybe did 50 plus years ago. I think that one of the things that the World Almanac's feature on the exit does really well is sort of put that immediacy in the larger context. 20 years of a conflict is a very long time. It was overseen by four presidents. Um, hundreds of thousands of service members were in country at some point, and that does not even include the, the many thousands of coalition forces that served. It's a really great feature as far as providing all of that information, all of that context that you'll need to, to be able to, five years from now, ten years from now, still have a, a, a better sense of where the conflict ended and, you know, the basis for going forward. My thanks to executive editor Sarah Jansen for being with us today about the 2022 edition to the World Almanac. It has a lot of information in there, as I talked about in the interview. I mean, if you haven't really thumbed through it lately, it's a good thing to do. I was able to take a look at it. I mean, everything about uh, the economy, military affairs, which we talked about today, U.S. cities, states, population, international statistics, sports, consumer information, it's all there. So, And it's very easy to get. You just Google World Almanac 
2022, and you can get your own copy. And I want to asterisk this interview again. I am not paid a promotional fee or any money whatsoever for interviewing this guest, in this case, Sarah Jansen, or any other author. I just kind of pick out what I think is interesting, and I hope that you find the interviews interesting too. I heard something a while back, and I want to share that with you because it really had a pretty big impact on how I viewed the world. And it comes from about 5000 BC. And here it is. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. So essentially what that is saying is that we are doomed to repeat our mistakes. Again, coming from 5000 BC, they knew what then for crying out loud. So, you know, it's one thing I kind of think about along those lines, and we're all guilty of this ourselves. It's like we think about our lives and history beginning when we were born. I've actually heard people say that. Well, I don't know anything about this because it happened before I was born, and yet they are making these comments about what we should be doing in the future. And when I hear that, I bristle a bit. If you're going to have really hard opinions about what we should be doing here and there in terms of this country and where we should go, you really owe it to yourself and other people that you're expressing your opinion to to have some idea of what has come before. Because again, we continue to make the same mistakes over and over again. There are two outs in the bottom of the ninth. Base is loaded. The Seattle Mariners trail the L.A. Dodgers by three runs in Game 7 of the World Series. Who would you rather see step up to the plate? Mitch Hanniger or a promising but yet untested player just called up from the minors? If Mitch Hanniger is your choice, that means experience is important to you. That's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. Topics explored including public affairs, self-employment, travel, health and fitness, history, and adventure. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Voices of Experience is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. Stuart Elway of the Crosscut Elway Poll has joined us once again. People are feeling better about their personal situation right now, but not about their community where they live, the state, in this case Washington, or the country. But you also say that is not that unusual. Right. It, we, this is a series of questions that we've asked for 30 years. This is the, this is the 30th uh, anniversary of the first Elway Poll. Congratulations. Yes, thank you. Uh, seems like only yesterday. What was notable this time, while uh, we had 58% say things were getting better for their household, that is lower than it was six months ago. And six months ago, it was lower than it was a year ago. And Democrats and independents are more optimistic than the Republicans. Right, right. Which is generally um, what it is. Yeah, and and if the Republicans were in power, that would probably shift. When Trump was president, the Democrats thought that the country was going to hell. When 
Biden's in power, the Republicans think. And the top concerns, this is number one position since 2014, is the economy and particularly inflation. Basically, that shows up for people in the grocery store and the gas line. You interviewed someone up north. I can't remember the town, but it was someone in the construction business. And they said, essentially, they could build three homes a year. And now they're down to one because of supply issues. We asked people later in the survey whether the economy had actually impacted them. And 50% said yes. COVID is not as big a concern as it was this time last year. It's down like 30 points. Did I read that right? Last year, uh, at this same time, uh, over half of the people in an open-ended question volunteered COVID uh, or the, uh, the pandemic as the number one issue. That was the first time in 10 years that any issue had, had topped uh, 50%. This year, about half that same number, 23%, mentioned COVID. Live with it. It doesn't seem quite the crisis it was last year. And then the third issue was homelessness, which popped up uh, to 21%. Uh, and that was up from uh, only 13% last year. So those are, those are the three big issues that people okay. want the legislature to be looking at. Something I saw, too, is that uh, gun control in the state, I imagine what the, uh, the poll was about or the question, and that would be high-capacity guns. And what surprised me, again, is not the people who were in favor of limiting high-capacity guns, but 44% oppose that. Right. 44% oppose high magazine AK-47s. I know I'm ranting here a little bit, but I just find it just almost impossible to think that people believe that. Well, I don't think people do believe that. I think what's happened is the gun control issue, like so many in our country right now, have become so polarized. The ban on high-capacity magazines was supported by 94% of the Democrats in our poll, and it was opposed by 87% of the Republicans. So nine out of ten in each party took their party's side. Well, we've gotten to a point where many of these issues are not about the issues themselves. They're about, uh, about opposing the other tribe. And if Democrats uh, support this, then I'm going to oppose it and vice versa. It doesn't matter what the issue is. It rarely matters what the issue is. And it, it, almost everything's become polarized. I think I, I think I could get a party difference right now if I did a poll on whether it's raining outside. But the proponents of gun rights think that any law that does anything to restrict any gun uh, right is the first step on the slippery slope. I think and the uh, yes, the NRA has been very effective in making that case over the years. Yeah, and I think it's the 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 gun rights people are totally bought in on that approach. Anything else, Stu, that you uh, glean from this poll, perhaps that we should be aware of? We asked a couple of questions: party identification, which uh, in this state, as you know, is 
not required. So you get to change it all the time. It's more of an attitude than an identity for a lot of people. What I ask question is, if uh, you had to register by party, would you register as a Democrat or Republican or an independent? The Democrats have had a double-digit advantage in that question for the last several years. But this in this poll, it was closer than it has been uh, since 2017, and that was 36% said they would register as a Democrat, 29 as a Republican, 35% as independent. So that's a seven-point edge, which over the 30 years I've been doing this is right about the average over, over 30 years. But as I say, the Democrats have been up in the double digits, uh, mid, you know, mid-teens for the last several years. So that that closed up. As things stand today, and it's you know, 11 months till the election, would you be inclined to vote for Patty Murray to return to the U.S. Senate, or would you be inclined to vote for a Republican opponent this time? The answer was 42 percent would vote for Murray, 39 percent vote for a Republican to replace her. So she has a three-point lead against an unnamed generic Republican challenger. We asked, how are you inclined to vote for state legislature, 42% said they were inclined to vote for Democrats and 39% said they were inclined to vote for Republicans. Two years ago, in this same, at this same time, in January 2020, heading into the last midterms, the, Repub- the Democrats had a 17-point advantage in this question. And this year they have a three-point advantage. Seems to fall in line with the national narrative right now that the democrats are heading for a bad year sometimes it's easier to be running against nobody i mean maybe if the nominee were culp or something like that against patty murray that may change the dynamics of that a lot but uh also he's got to concede the last election i think before he runs for the next one i don't know if i don't know if that's a requirement or not but i i do know that six years ago we did the same thing and in fact uh Patty Murray did less well against the generic Republican than she did against her actual opponent, who was Chris Vance. Wow. She did better against the named Republican than the imaginary Republican. So that you're right about that. Yeah. My thanks is to Elway of the Crosscut Elway Poll. And uh, if you want to actually read more in depth of the poll results, just Google Crosscut-Elway Poll. Oh, and congratulations to Stu for 30 years of conducting polls in Washington State. That's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. Voices of Experience is aired on Kixie, 3 o'clock p.m. on Wednesdays, and repeated on Sundays at 11 a.m. again right here on Kixie, and is simulcast with KKNW, 11.50 a.m. My name is Paul Casey. If you would like to talk to me about anything about the show or make any suggestions or comment on today's show, you can call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. That's 425-653-1166. Again, my name is Paul Casey. Quote of the week. The moral test of government is how the government treats those who are in the dawn of life, the children, those who are in the twilight of life, the elderly, and those who are in the shadows of life, the sick and the needy. Hubert H. Humphrey.
If you or a loved one has diabetes, you know that keeping up with your health care is important, but can be time-consuming and costly. The good news is, if you are on Medicare, your benefits can help. Here are some tips from the National Association of Area Agencies on Aging and United Healthcare. Know your numbers. Medicare covers blood glucose monitors, test strips, and other supplies, as well as lab tests for A1C checks. Take care of your eyes. Medicare covers medically necessary vision screenings, including screenings for people with diabetes. Get moving. Talk to your doctor about what exercise is right for you. Some Medicare Advantage plans include a gym membership benefit. To learn more about healthy aging, contact your local area agency on aging. To learn more about Medicare, visit MedicareMadeClear.com.